Let me pray for us. Father, we worship You. We love You so much. And we are so grateful that You have revealed Yourself to us, not only through Your creation, but You have revealed Yourself to us in a very special way through Your Word. And so I pray, God, that as we get into Your Word today, that we would learn more about You. And that we would, we would see You in Your Word. We would hear You. That You would minister to us all, God. We all desperately need to meet with You in this place today. And we've come here for that reason. And so I trust and I believe by faith, God, that You will reward the people who have come here today. And so I ask, God, that You be honored, that You receive glory, that You would speak through me. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, so we are in Acts chapter 14. And as I had already mentioned, Acts is written by Luke. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the beloved physician. And so part of this narrative, he is writing it. These are accounts that he has received secondhand. But halfway through, around about, uh, he becomes a first-hand eyewitness of the things that take place. And we'll see that as we move on in the coming weeks. That transition is getting ready to happen. But this records the first 30 years of church history, from the ascension of Christ to the birth of the church and how the church spread around the known world at that time. And that, that is ultimately what we are looking at here. So it's, it is the... the actions, the acts, the works of the apostles as led by the Holy Spirit in the first 30 years of the church. And the first several chapters really chronicled Peter. Peter is a a very significant figure in the book. But now we have transitioned and Paul the apostle is, is the main player. And he is the apostle to the Gentiles. So one of the main things that we're going to be considering today in this chapter is idolatry, idol worship. We'll talk more about what that is here in just a moment. But let me just say this. For Paul, Paul was uh, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He operated in Jerusalem. It was the hub of, of Orthodoxy, Judaism. And for Paul now to be the the missionary to the Gentiles, the apostle to the, to the non-Jews. He's going out into unknown territory and he's seeing things that I imagine in a lot of ways would be very shocking to him as an Orthodox Jew. Seeing the kind of idolatry and pagan worship that was taking place all throughout these regions. And I'll explain in a little more detail here in a moment what I'm talking about. I'll, I will define my terms for you so that we understand this clearly. But um, at the same time, idolatry, pagan worship, this wasn't such a new thing, uh, I think, in Paul's mind. Because he was a scholar of the Old Testament, he understood very well that his nation had quite a history of idol worship. And so when I talk about idolatry in its most strictest sense, I'm talking about, I think we all probably understand the worship of images. Oftentimes it would be little figurines, things that they would carve out of wood or fashion out of precious metals. And they would worship these little statues or figurines or images as gods. They would fall down before them and they would put their trust in them and cry out to them and seek them for for various things. 
And Israel had a history of this type of thing. All the way from its inception, Abraham, we believe that Abram came out of a a very paganistic culture and and tradition. Legend has said that even Abraham's father was an idol maker. And we don't know that for sure, but it doesn't take long as you start to work your way through Genesis that you see idolatry popping up all over the place. And then we get into Exodus and we know the story of Moses. He goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. He comes back 40 days later and they've already fashioned a golden calf that they are worshiping and, uh, and they're off and running. And then we, we see this become a cycle. It's a problem all throughout the Old Testament, the times of the kings. The kings would so often fall into idolatry, paganism, uh, seeking to follow in the ways of the, the neighboring countries and territories worshiping foreign, false, strange gods and deities. And so this was something that we would see so often. And there are some Scriptures in the Old Testament that describe for us what, how God sees idolatry, how God sees pagan worship. And I won't read them to you because they're rather lengthy, but one of them is in Isaiah chapter 44. And he's talking about just how ludicrous idol worship really was. He says, you know, you you take a tree, you plant it, the rain comes, it's watered, it grows, you cut it down, you use part of it to to heat your house, you use the other part to to cook your food, you, you eat, you're filled, and then you take what's left and you fashion a God and you worship it. and You fall down in front of it and cry out for it to deliver you. And that's just ridiculous, is it not? And that's the point of that text. He's saying, look at, look at how silly this is. You're first off taking something that, that really God created by sending the rain and the seed, and, and then you take that created thing and then you uh, use it to heat your house, to eat, and then you take the rest and worship it. Well, then also in Psalm 115, it talks about the, the images that are made by human hands and how so often we'll fashion images in our own image, according to our own likeness. And he says you take, you take the wood and you, you carve it and you give it a face. You give it eyes, though it cannot see. You give it ears, though it cannot hear. You give it a mouth, though it cannot speak. And you become just like the idol that you made. Blind, deaf, cannot speak. And so it's a, a very strong warning, caution, rebuke even, all throughout the Old Testament to to watch out for idolatry, forsake that, abandon it, because it is a temptation that is ever before us. Man loves to create a God in his own image. Right? Did you hear that? And that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. We create a God that looks and sounds an awful lot like ourselves. And so that is the, the warning that is ever before us. Unbelievers do this. Big time. They love to take all kinds of different ideas and notions that they like and create a God in their own image that they serve, but really it's a servant to them. But believers, we also can do this. Idolatry is the thing that is ever before us. And I'll, and I'll talk as we go about the connection that I make between the, the idea of, of true Old Testament idolatry and what idolatry looks like for us in our context because there definitely are some similarities and John Calvin said it he said the human heart is an idol factory 
The human heart is an idol factory. And so that's really going to be the main thrust of the chapter today as we work our way through it. Paul is concluding his first missionary journey. And as he goes off into gospel ministry, he's going to come into a place and he's going to confront pagan worship head on. And he's going to tell them to turn away from these useless things and to turn to the living God. And so that is the punch of this message. That is really what I want to talk about. So we'll work our way through our text. We'll land on that. And that will, in a sense, almost be like a message within a message. And we're going to talk about idolatry, the dangers of it, the propensity that we have towards it, and to flee from it, and to turn away from those things that we find ourselves worshiping or living for or sacrificing to, and turning back to the living God. And that's the whole thing, the living God. He's not a deaf God, a blind God, a meaningless God. He is the true and living God. In Him is life. In Him is truth. In Him is purpose and him is salvation amen and so that is paul's call to them to turn to the living god so with that chapter 14 verse 1 now it happened in iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the jews and so spoke that a great multitude both of the jews and of the greeks believed but the unbelieving jews stirred up the gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So as is the typical approach for Paul, he goes first to the synagogue. That is uh, his common method, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. So that's what he does here. And initially there seems to be great success. The Jews and the Greeks are believing but then we have these, these unbelieving Jews who come in and poison the people's minds to try to turn them away from the message of the Gospel. Now it's important to note these people because these same unbelieving Jews here in Iconium will surface again in a later place in the text. So just kind of keep that in your mind. But one point I want to make here is just the ability to poison people's minds. Good things were happening here. The message was going forth. People were believing. But then you had those naysayers. You had those people that came in and poisoned their minds. And you know what, guys? We have the ability to influence people for good or for bad. And I think most of us in here would, would uh, do our very best and gladly encourage people verbally to do that is what is right and to live for the Lord. But our, our lives, our actions also speak. And so the way that we live our lives, the way that we, uh, we worship the Lord, serve the Lord, wherever God places us, I often refer to our sphere of influence, uh, wherever you live your life, you have the ability to influence people for good. Not to be one who poisons people's minds away from the truth, but one that is the scent, the fragrance of Christ that draws people in. We don't ever want to be those who poison people's minds against Christ. But we see that influence is very real and people are here doing their best to oppose the truth. Well, what's interesting to me is that right after it says that, it says, therefore, they stayed for a long time. So often when we hear that there's opposition, people will say, well, this must not be of the Lord, so they just pack it up and move on. But no, no, there was opposition and therefore they stayed for a long time. The battle was intense. 
The enemy was there trying to stop something that God was doing. You know, when there's opposition happening in your life, so often that is a great sign. When you don't have opposition, when the enemy is not in the mix trying to derail you, then you're not really a threat. And so that's something to consider. I try to say that as gently as I can with people, but when they're going through hard times or there are trials or there's uh, demonic opposition, I want to tell them right on. You're, you're in a good place. You're doing something right. So keep, keep going for it. And that was what the apostles did. They, they stayed for a long time and they continued to minister. And we were told that the Lord was confirming their ministry through signs and wonders. They were being validated by God. The things that they were saying, it was true. And people could know that because of the great miracles that, that were happening by their hands. Well, verse 4, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Alright, so as they're here, they're ministering in great power. Awesome things are happening. There's opposition. They catch wind of the fact that there's a plot coming up against them. That the, the people there are being stirred up to stone them. And so they catch wind of this and they leave. So they go to Lystra, Derby, Lyconia, surrounding regions. This would be the region of Galatia. That's where they are entering into. So when... Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, it's these churches. It's the fruit of the ministry that's happening here and in the coming missionary journeys of Paul there in Galatia. So they travel on to the next place. And we're going to see a, a, a healing happen in verse 8. So now they're in Lystra. So verse 8, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. And Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So, now the scene is set. We're told there was a man here who had been crippled from his mother's womb. He had never walked. Everyone knew that they knew that this guy was paralyzed and had been that way his whole life. But Paul was looking at him. He had faith. He believed what he was hearing. Paul was looking at him intently. He fixed his gaze on him. You remember this happened recently. A couple weeks ago we talked about that. Paul fixed his gaze on someone else, but it wasn't such a good thing. It was someone who was trying to thwart the works of God. So Paul fixed his gaze on him and then he struck him blind. And so this is quite the reverse here. And this guy, this is so beautiful, he, he saw, he heard, he believed, and Paul recognized this, and Paul healed him. And that is so beautiful to me when a person has faith to believe. They hear the message, they hear the truth, they recognize it as something beautiful, something glorious, and they have faith to believe it. And the Lord loves that. The Lord loves when we believe that He is who He says He is. When we believe that we are who He says we are. You know, I was a sinner, separated from God. I was a bad person. I was not good. And I did not measure up to God's righteous standard. And that's what it means to confess your sin. It is to agree with God that you are who He says you are. And so, when you believe that, 
but you believe that God is who He says He is and that God has done what He said He did by sending His Son to die in our stead so that if we put our trust, our faith in Him, that we would believe and and be born again. And and we continue on in faith believing that He will do what He says He's going to do. And that is, He's going to to, uh, one day have us in a glorified place worshiping Him forever in heaven in His presence. Isn't that glorious? And so, it, it was all faith. It's all belief. And God loves that. God loves belief. And so, this man was rewarded for his faith. And Paul healed him. And we're told that he stood up straight and he leaped and he walked. And that is such a glorious thing. Well, verse 11, we're going to see the, the response of the locals here. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So they probably didn't expect this kind of a response. So they, they heal the guy. The guy, he's leaping and standing straight. And the people say, the gods, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. And so now they're going to sacrifice to them. And they're calling them Zeus and Hermes. And Hermes was the chief speaker of the gods, right? And so it, it would make sense that they would attribute that to Paul. Paul was the preacher there. Um, there was, so it's been said, there is a, a legend surrounding uh, this, this city that Zeus and Hermes had come down at one point in history to visit this place, and they didn't receive hospitality from anyone at all except for this elderly couple. So they destroyed the city with the exception of the elderly couple. And so it would make sense through that lens that these Paul and Barnabas come in and do this, and the Lystrians see this, and they think, oh man, Zeus and Hermes, they're back. And they're like, we're not going to mess up this time. And so they go overboard and they're like sacrificing and, and worshiping them. Well, Paul and Barnabas probably wouldn't know what was going on at first because they don't speak Lyconian, I would imagine. But once the priests show up and they're sacrificing to them, they, they understand they're being worshipped. So they, they panic and they start to tear their clothes and cry out, don't do this, don't worship us. And so we'll talk about that here in a second. So, verse 14. Now this is where I'm going to really get into the crux of the message, what I was talking about, pagan idolatry. Uh, this is where I'm going to really spend some time hammering on this. As I said, it's almost like a message within a message. And so we, we enter into it now. So verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men... Why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good." gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. 
And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So as I said, when they understood what was happening, they, they frantically tried to stop the people tearing their clothes. This was blasphemy. They were attributing the works of God to men. They were calling these men God. you remember what happened to Herod a few weeks back when the people were crying out, the voice of God, not, not men. And he was eaten with worms. He was struck because he didn't give God the glory. Well, they weren't going to fall into that trap. So they ran in the crowd crying out, tearing their clothes this was blasphemy. Don't do that. They said, we are men just like you with the same nature. Do not worship us. They said, look, turn from all of this. Turn from this useless stuff. Turn from these useless things, these dead things, these empty things, these meaningless things, these powerless things. Turn to the living God, the true God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And that's what he begins to unpack here. He presents to them the one true God, the living God who has created the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. He makes that point because they worship those things. They worship the, the host of heavens. They worship the stars, the sun, the, the moon, the, the earth, the sea, the sea creatures. And Romans talks about that very thing. Worshipping the creation rather than the Creator. And that is uh, something that we fall into. That is where idolatry starts to become very real for us. Because so often we're not thanking the giver of the gift. We're not recognizing and acknowledging Him as such. We're just excited about the gift. We're living for the creation itself. We're not worshipping the Creator. So Paul takes it all the way back. It's about God, the living God who created all of these things. And even though man has rejected God, he continues on, he says, even though man has rejected God and turned away after the worship of creation, God never left them without a witness. God continued to provide for them. God continued to send rain. And they had rain. They had food, gladness of heart. And Romans talks about that as well. That... Um, God never left us without a witness. Even though man's heart turned away from God and began to worship base things, the, the creation rather than the Creator, creation itself testifies that there is a God. Creation itself testifies that there is something greater. There is the One who created all of these lesser things that we settle for, these lesser things that we worship. So Paul is systematically working through this. There is a God, the living God, that created all of these things. And even though you have turned away from God, man has turned away from God to worship the lesser things, God never left you without a witness. God continued to provide. And we call that common grace. God gives common grace to the world, to unbelievers. We still enjoy so many blessings from God because of His goodness. God is a good God. He's a benevolent God. He still allows the rain to fall on the unjust, the sun to shine on the unjust, children to be born to the unjust. God allowed blessing still as a witness, as a testimony to His kindness and His goodness, even to the people that have rejected Him. Even with all of this, they could not be restrained from worshiping and sacrificing. So I just want to take a moment, I want to put the brakes on, and I want to talk about idolatry. I want to talk about what it is in the Bible. 
I want to talk about how it connects to us, the similarities between pagan idolatry and, and how we fall into these kinds of things. So, first off, I want to say that literal idolatry, it exists today all around the world and still right here in our country. In Tennessee, I lived uh, there before I moved here, small little country town, mountain town, 14,000 people in the Smoky Mountains. There was a little Thai restaurant. And my wife and I, we were there eating, and we had a, a friend that worked there, and, and she was waiting at our table. And she said, yeah, I got invited here for a, a Thanksgiving celebration. We closed the restaurant, but we all came together and ate. And they wanted me to, to bring a turkey. They wanted an, an American you know, dish, so she was so excited. And she said, so I brought it, and they sacrificed it to the dead. And business has really picked up. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, that kind of weirded me out a little bit. And so, yeah, I mean, they had little idols there. I imagine they took a little turkey leg and sat it in a bowl right in front of the idol. I don't know. I mean, that kind of stuff, that's kind of silly. But there is grotesque idol worship that is still happening in this world and uh, in this country all around the world. But what exactly does that mean? What does it represent? Because it's... There's something deeper happening there. It's not just the image. It's not just the, the little figurine or statue or whatever it is. It represents something much deeper. So that kind of idol worship, it represents protection. They appease these little gods because they think that somehow they can have divine protection. It represents provision. They offer sacrifice to these little idols because they think somehow they will uh, have all of their needs met. There will be provision there. There's prosperity. So often we see that even in the, the Old Testament. Um, the gods that even the nation of Israel would worship, it was all about these very things. Protection, provision, prosperity, that rain would come, that the agriculture, the crops would, would produce fertility. That was a big one. Fertility for their livestock, fertility for their families. They would sacrifice to pagan gods and idols for fertility and even communion with the divine. Now, they, there, there was something in, inherently religious about people and they still had this longing to connect with the divine, but again, it's the one that they've created in their own image. They create their own, their own uh, way to, to God and their own understanding of what this God is and what this God is like. And then they appease these gods based on their own system of worship. Well, God refused to be associated with images. God hated it. He made that very clear. It was in the Ten Commandments. He said, you shall have no graven images. God didn't want man trying to make some kind of image that represented Him. And why is that? Well, first off, God is spirit. God doesn't have an image. God is the invisible God. He is spirit. And so, any kind of image uh, would be a misrepresentation of Him. But secondly, it makes God small. You think that you can just make a little trinket? You can make God into a trinket and keep Him in your pocket? And He kind of spoke to that with uh, the temple. When David wanted to build the, God a house, He said, Man, I fill the heavens. The heavens can't contain Me. You think you can uh, have Me in a, in a house? And so God is a big God, so much bigger than, than our minds could ever conceive of. So we can't make, bring Him down to a little image or a trinket. 
No image could ever fully represent God. Even if there was some aspect of God that could be communicated through an image, there, it's so much more complex than that. God is manifold in His attributes and His nature and His character. And so again, it makes God less when you try to whittle it down to, to one uh, sort of representation of God. And again, you cannot represent God with created things. He is the, the uncreated being. He is the uncaused cause. All things have been created through Him. You're not going to take His creation and then represent Him with it. God, He would not stand for that. And frankly, there is only one who can truly represent God. You know who that is? It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. And He is the express image, the exact imprint. He said that if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He is the only one that is qualified to represent God. And no graven image, no statue, no, no figurine, no, no anything could do that. Well, why did God hate idols so much? Because God clearly hated idols. One, as I said, it's a rejection of the true God. When we make an idol, we're rejecting God. And that's what that is. They were worshiping anything other than the true God Himself. And God is a jealous God. He is jealous for His glory. He demands His glory. And so, glory is being given to these idols. God hated that. It was reprehensible to Him. And it gave a license for, for gross immorality. If you create a God in your own image, then you're self-governing. You can do what you want to do. And that's why a lot of people don't want to come to, to the true and living God, to Christ, because they don't want to be accountable to the Creator. They don't want to be accountable to Him. They want to do what they want to do. They want to appease their own conscience. So many people suppress the truth of God and they say there is no God. Or they create a God in their own image that's okay with whatever lifestyle that they choose. That's idolatry. It's pagan. And people do some really awful things in idol worship. And uh, I think of the God of Molech in the Old Testament. People would... would um, sacrifice their babies to Molech, burn them alive. It was called passing them through the fire. Um, I won't get into that. It's, it's really awful, really grotesque, and God hated it. God hated it. And so He made that very, very clear. So what are modern idols? How does this connect to us? What does this have to do with us? Well, I would, I would say this in its most simplest form, an idol is anything in our lives that takes the place of the true and living God. It's anything that would become the master passion in our lives outside of God Himself. It's anything that we would sacrifice to. Anything that we would sacrifice to. We would be willing to sacrifice things for this purpose, whatever it is, apart from God, even if it's God Himself. And this is something that applies to every one of us in this room. You may be an unbeliever in here. You might be a Christian. But as I said, John Calvin said it, the heart is an idol factory. And so I'm really convicted by this because I know my struggles and I know you know your struggles. And this is something that we have to be aware of, vigilant to... to um, put our finger on these things and to cast down our idols. Cast down that idol and turn to the living God. 
We can make idols out of good things. And that's usually how it starts. God gives us many wonderful blessings, many things to enjoy. Many things that we ought to enjoy and then worship Him because of it. And then we turn those things into something of worship. So I have a list in your notes there. And I have one that is really good things that become distorted or even perverted. uh, That become idols that we worship. And then some things are just bad altogether, but these are things that, that are worshipped. So first off, and I'm not going to expand on every single one of these, but I would say success. Success is not a bad thing. Uh, God has given us uh, mental faculty, the ability to think and reason and to, uh, to take on projects and to, to grow and to learn and to excel in life. And, and God does prosper us as we go. There's nothing wrong with wanting to advance, with wanting to excel, but some people will, will uh, live solely for success. That's what it is all about. And they'll sacrifice anything to get there, even their own families. People will sacrifice their family on the altar of success. You know, um, when people worshipped gods and, and idols, um, they thought they were going to get something in return. And there was no guarantees of that. There was no guarantee, but they would give everything in the hopes that it would, in the end, pan out. And that is very similar to this idea of uh, worshiping success, willing to sacrifice everything with no real guarantees. And then you spend your life, you waste everything, and then there was nothing to gain. Or you gain it, but... At what cost? Jesus says, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and then to lose your soul? And to sacrifice all of these wonderful things that God has given you in the process. Not least of which, God Himself. Uh, when, when you suppress all of that and your focus in life becomes success. Safety and security. Safety and security. We all want these things. And we live... We're, we're blessed. We live in a place in the world and in the country where, where we are relatively safe. It's not something that we have to worry about too much. But some people become so obsessed with safety and security, that's all that they're living for, that uh, they'll sacrifice everything else. If God's calling them to step out in faith and do that, well, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm living for safety. I'm living for security. That's what my life is bound up in. Wealth, uh, this is kind of like success. Wealth is okay. God gives people wealth, particularly if they're people who will be generous with that wealth. But there are people who will spend all of their lives and all, everything they have, all their energy to, to, to have this God for themselves. Physical attractiveness. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, married couples... It's not bad to try to maintain and, and be uh, attractive for your spouse. But you see some of the stuff that people do trying to be attractive you know, in just a very bizarre and unrealistic way all the way up into their 80s. I mean, the day and age that we live in, you look at the media, you look at the TV, you know what, guys? Age is working against us. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But people sure do try. And you see people on TV that are 80 years old, and it's like, what in the world have they done to themselves? And they, they've done all these things to try to preserve their youth, to preserve their appearance, 
And they end up looking very strange in the process. It just does not work. And that's the God that they're worshiping. They're worshiping that God. Pleasure. You know, that's, God has given us things to enjoy. And food, uh, sex within the confines of marriage. There are many glorious things that, there are many simple pleasures in life that, that God has given us to enjoy. But for many people, their, their God is pleasure and they will sacrifice anything in that pursuit. Career, as I said, this really ties in with uh, what I've said about success. People will sacrifice to the gods of career uh, at the expense of everything else. Education. I put kids' sports in here. I want to tread lightly. Sports and kids' sports. I want to tread lightly here. I don't want to, to offend. And I understand the, the value of, of sports for kids. And I realize that my kids are very small, but one day I'll be in that boat. And these are just conversations my wife and I have already had. What are we going to do when that time comes? But that seems to be the number one issue that I, as a youth pastor, came up against. Uh, kids couldn't be there because they were worshiping at the altar of basket bail or foot bail. And it was just like, that's it. And that's not even a question. You know, school... No doubt they're going to be there. They have to be there. Sports, no doubt they're going to be there. They have to be there. Church, eh, maybe. You know, I've heard parents even say, is it wrong to make your kids go if they don't want to go? Will you make them do other things? Why, why would you give them the option there? It's just really giving them the view that it's not that important. These are lesser things. Community, the, the body of Christ, the family of God, the Word of God, the worship of God, those are lesser things. Uh, sports, you know, it's a character builder, right? You want your kids, we want our kids to, to grow in character. I heard a pastor talk about this. If that is true, in theory, the, the people of the highest quality of character in the world would be professional athletes, right? Well, I'm not impressed. I don't, I don't see it. And so I, I just say, be careful about that. You know, I'm already thinking through the. I want my daughters to be able to excel in things, but it's not going to be at the expense of, of um, gathering with the saints, the body of Christ, uh, the church of God. Hobbies, relationships, ministry. Those are all things that, that we can worship. Hobbies are a good thing, but they can become, you know, you know our everything. Um, relationships again and, and see this is the thing with relationships and marriages in particular we oftentimes try to put our spouse in the place of god and we put unrealistic expectations on on those people there are certain things certain needs that you have emotional needs that only god can meet that only god can fill that but somehow you put your spouse in the place of God and now it's up to them to fulfill you in, in, in every sense of, of the word. And uh, they become the God. But that's so unfair because nobody can meet that. Nobody can do that but God Himself. And then you're putting them in the place of God. And that is just a recipe for disaster. They become the God that you uh, are worshiping. And some people, single people, they look at it like, well, if I can, once I get married, I'll finally be happy. Uh, you know? And I think married people know better than that. They can laugh because it's such a blessing. Indeed, it is, but it's a challenge. It's hard. 
And it certainly is not a matter of now I've arrived and all my wildest dreams have come true and I'm finally happy. It just doesn't work that way. But people, people look at it like that. It's you know, the blessedness of, of singleness. It's something that the church doesn't talk very much about, but it is, it is a wonderful thing. And it is something that people, some people are called to. And joyfully, they love it. They use their singleness to glorify God, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, but some people see marriage, that they, that's idolatry. That's the thing they're living for, and they won't be happy until they find that. Ministry, as I said, ministry. Uh, that's one of the things that I, I have to watch out for. Um, ministry can become an idol. It can be the, the, the thing that I'm living for and the thing that I sacrifice my family uh, on the altar of. And so, again, I just say these things. I say these are things that are all good but, and they are ever before us, but that uh, the human heart and its depra- depravity and our wickedness and our fallen state, we will always take beautiful things and turn them into tainted things, sinful things. And we have to be so very cautious of that. And there are more, so many more that I could go into. Um, time just does not permit. But I, I noted in here as well, power, notoriety, people's perception of us, intellectual uh, superiority, sex, drugs. Those are things that are, are really just purely bad, but those are things that people live for, things that people worship. Um, especially as people's perception of us. And social media in particular, I've talked about this before. People will really go out of their way to project a certain image of themselves. doesn't matter if it's true or not, just so long as that's what people think. And it's as good as done for us, right? And the, the fear of man, it's amazing. My wife did a study on this not too long ago. I think it was like an eight-week study on the fear of man. It's incredible how often we do this. And don't even realize it until we really start to consider it and pray about it and uh, meditate on these things, just how much on a day-to-day basis we filter things through what other people will think about it. I would encourage you to consider that. Pray and ask the Lord to show you if you do that and how much so. But that's, that's a big one. That's a big idol uh, this day and age. And so that kind of wraps up this portion of what I'm, what I'm saying. But this was, this was the message. None of these things, these things are not God's. God, the Lord is the God. Amen? And He is the true and the living God. And He is the only one that can truly provide the only one that can truly protect, the only one that can truly save, the only one who can truly hear, and the only one that can truly respond. And so that is the God to whom we must give our worship. That is the God to whom we must give our allegiance. He is the only one who can truly satisfy. And that was what Paul was trying to direct these people back to. Up to this point, Paul had really just been preaching the Gospel to the Jews. The Jews were pretty far removed from these kinds of things. And they were very steeped in Judaism. So Paul would start in the Old Testament and show them how Jesus was in fact the the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. But now he's dealing with pagan idolaters and he's having to go all the way back to the fact that we have turned from the Creator to become worshipers of creation and we need to turn away from that back to the true and living God. And that's my challenge to all of us in here. What idols are we worshiping? What idols, what images have we given ourselves over to? What are the things that we're willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of, even, even our relationship with God? Turn away from those things to the living and true God.
All right, well, moving on to the text, and we'll kind of um, start to wrap it up at this point. So verse 19, Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So those unbelieving Jews back in Iconium that, that were poisoning the minds of other people, they actually came all the way from there to the, uh, these towns and did it again. So the plot that had been set forth towards Paul and Barnabas initially came to fruition in these other towns. And the people came together and actually stoned Paul. They drug him out of the town and stoned him. And we don't know if he died or not. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he had had a vision of the third heaven. And he says he heard things that were unlawful to even speak of. And some people think this was the point in which Paul had that vision. They think Paul was stoned, he was dead, he saw, the, he saw heaven, he saw the third heaven, and, and he came back to life. We don't know that to be true, but it's interesting to consider. What's impressive to me, though, is when he came back, he went back into the city. That's crazy to me. And he said, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul understood. Paul knew that this was going to be a hard, difficult road. God said to Ananias, remember he said, I must show Saul, at that time his name was Saul, I must show him the things that he will suffer for my sake. So Paul already knew that what was coming for him and what, what his life and ministry would be. And he understood that the kingdom... Pursuing kingdom life, working for God as a kingdom worker is hard. It's not a life of luxury. It's not a life of, it's not for the soft. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. And Paul knew that. And he said, don't be shocked by this. And Paul persevered in it. Well, verse 23, now they're, they're looping around and they're, they're going back through the cities that they had previously uh, visited on their way back to Antioch. So, verse 23, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. So as I mentioned last week, this was something that Paul would do. He would go from town to town, city to city, plant churches, appoint elders. And so that's why we did that last week. And they went back to the churches that they had initially started and visited to check up on them. How are you doing? How are things going? That's important. That's a point right there. It's one thing to be saved, but we must be discipled. You know, you don't want to lead someone to Christ and then send them on their way. You want to, how are you doing? How's it coming along? How is your walk with the Lord? They came back through and they visited the people. They were concerned about the welfare of the Christians. In verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they concluded the first missionary journey, and they went back to Antioch. As I said, that was kind of like the missionary launch center of the church. 
And so Paul is now back in Antioch and he's telling everyone all of the wonderful works that they saw, all the crazy stuff that, that God did and that God was moving amongst the Gentiles. And we're going to pick up next week in the following chapter that there are still people in the church that take issue with that. And so that's where we pick up next week. But his journey is concluded and he's glorifying God for all the wonderful works that he has done. So let's do that right now. I'm going to have the worship team come up. Let's close with a song. Let's glorify God for the wonderful works that He has done in our life, in our church, in the city, in the world. I want to encourage you to pray. We're going to have our people up here to offer you prayer. Um, if you have idols, if your heart is an idol factory and you know it, and you have idols that you're worshiping, you can come up front. We'll pray for you. We would love to do that. You can pray right where you're sitting. You can meet with the Lord and you can, you can turn your life over to the living God right where you are at. So, let me pray for us. Father, we love You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the, the message that You have spoken into the hearts and the minds of Your people today. And so as we close with a song, God, I pray that our worship would be acceptable to You. We are pouring out our praise, our worship, our adoration to You, the, the true and the living God. May it be acceptable in Your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.